0: You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs.
1: Hey, Kelly Daniels.
0: Hello, Dan Lipman. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Hi. I'm glad you asked. I have a little bit of a allergy thing going on today, so I've been coughing, and I may cough throughout this podcast and next week's podcast because I predict that it's going to last for a week. It's
1: going um, it, to last until the end of recording next week's podcast.
0: Yes, um, it also turns out that I'm um, I seem to be allergic to staying up to like one one thirty in the morning and drinking beer last night um, really? because I also have that. And guess what, how I dealt with uh, my late night last night? Got um, up early to bring my kid. Sorry, I didn't let you guess. Yeah, um, That was rhetorical. I uh, brought my kid to soccer, 8 a.m. Then I had to meet my wife at the gym, and I worked out while hacking and coughing and having a headache for an hour and a half as if that makes up for the bad behavior last night or the bad stuff I put in my body. Right. And then I had a salad for lunch. Good Lord. A, a fucking salad. It was really unsatisfying. But here I am doing my favorite, one of my favorite things in the world to do. Talking Working about
1: lit. Out, a salad and uh, hanging out with your kid. was That was actually what I was going to guess. Where did you, who did you hang out with last night? Anybody I know?
0: You know Ruben? Ruben
1: I've Heine? I he's wonderful.
0: He is. I saw a band play called Districts or The Districts. Uh, the kids love them. Kids okay. love this band. And I had this real kind of genuine interaction with the lead singer. Um, and I guess they're pretty big. You know, they're big in Philly. They're from Philly mm-hmm. and they have records and they tour around. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I had this thing. I was uh, waiting for the bathroom and I kept pulling on the door because I didn't quite believe that it was really locked. I thought maybe I just wasn't pulling it hard enough. So I kept rattling it and pulling it and kind of going back a few seconds later and trying again. Finally, the door opens, and it's the lead singer of, you know, the headlining band, and he gave me a vibe as he walked by, as well he next, should.
1: Right. I mean, he was like, what's your problem, man? Yeah. Like
0: that that was, it was just sort of like, eh, people I have to deal with being a rock star. Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. And it was, I uh, felt like, you know, that was the kind of authentic interaction that I sort of look for when I meet famous people.
1: And yet you're up the next day and ready to podcast.
0: I am kind of ready. Yeah, I guess you might say I'm ready. Hey, I have a question for you.
1: I feel like the word ready? hero
0: is overused. I just wanted to make that joke, but in this case,
1: you're a hero. Okay, now ask me the question.
0: <laughs> Who is the greatest practitioner of literature in the whole world currently living? Don't answer. Want to know why we're not going to answer? Because that crunching paper sound has called Always? us away. And, Dan, I think you know that today is a very special revision day, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is.
0: Do you want to explain the context of our special, um, (laughs) heartfelt, and important and unusual revision?
1: I know what it is. I'm blanking on it for some reason.
0: It's... (laughs) You don't know what it is, do you? Or do you? Go ahead. I like your explanation. All right. Um, A... In a previous podcast, we talked about, what were we your talking race. about exactly? Um, no, it was your um, great success when you first started writing, or kind of early-ish yeah. in your writing, um, yes. where you published a story in the Paris Review, bam, and then you got a push cart, bam, bam, and um, not and wanting Prize. you to get too You, you mu- forgot
1: to mention the Plimpton Prize.
0: The Plimpton Prize, I did forget that, and I didn't even write it down in my notes, because I just, I, It was too much for me to take in. I couldn't let you have that much glory on air um, without me saying something to try to knock you down. So I said, yeah, and it's all been downhill since there. Something like that. I, right. <laughs> I messed with you, and then you kind of went with the messed with and said, yeah, that's funny that getting early success is the, the worst thing that can happen to a writer. Right. It turns out that a young um, listener of ours, uh, Sarah Jane, who uh, said that we could use her name on air, uh, wrote us and she was kind of upset. And she's like, I like, you know, listen to you guys. And, I, and she sort of takes us seriously, which is kind of surprised me. And now I have to rethink everything that, that yeah. people actually believe what we say. Um, and she said, Oh, the whole thing about early success, it, it threw her into a little uh, a tailspin, I guess. And she wanted us to talk about more. What do we meant by that? And so I think this would be a good revision segment. And, uh, I guess I would start by saying that I was mainly just going for a cheap laugh and that was 90% of my motivation, uh, but All I would say there's cheap. a 10% kernel of truth to it.
1: All laughs are cheap, Kelly. That's what you're going to learn when you attempt humor in, in the milieu of the podcast. I think that, um, and I, I had a little correspondence with Sarah as well. And, um, I, I, as I recall, I also mentioned the, the Garrison Keillor quote where he said that, um, Early praise is the worst thing you can do for a writer, or early success is the is the that is like the most damaging thing you can do to a young writer. Something along those lines. He also meant it flippantly, but but you and I have both sort of experienced that there is something to that.
0: Yeah, but there's right. nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with getting big and important and you know publications early in your career. So I would also just like to say that. No, don't ever try not to succeed early, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You know what I mean?
1: Oh, I'm writing this down.
0: <laughs> so, and if you do get put a story in The New Yorker and you just started writing a year ago, then congratulate yourself because you've done something amazing. Um, what I would say, though, is that don't assume, because of that, that your ticket is punched or whatever, that, and that the rest of your literary life will be like that. It may it may lead to more things, but and there is such a thing as, mo- as uh, momentum, but it isn't guaranteed. So keep working, keep trying to be better than you were before, uh, and don't use a good publication as the excuse to just kind of rest and go, all right, I'm there, now I can yeah. just keep you know. <clears> and if I out- can make,
1: I would like to also just add sort of non-flippantly from the heart that, well, first of all, when all that happened to me, I was 30, so not exactly young. Would you consider that young? Probably, probably. not. Yeah. But in terms of a writer's life, it's 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 probably the very last point at which you could claim any sort of youth. The other thing is that um, for me, it, it was such a high to experience that I, I got invited to a, uh, a party in Mr. Plimpton's home and I met with him and talked wow. to him. And it was it was there were writers that you've heard of who were there. And uh, I mean, it was just an amazing kind of a whirlwind experience Did you have to sleep with him. He offered that I could crash on his couch, but I had a hotel room. Oh, I don't know where it would have gone from there, but I would have. In any event, the, uh, you know, and he, you know, we had this very nice conversation where it was basically, he was, you know, it's like a machine there. He's got these, these young people from Harvard working for him all around him. And, um, you know, he talks to you for a little bit. And then, when the conversation kind of goes stale, he says, Well, you might want to talk to, you know, Mr. So and so. He's uh, right here. And he sort of passes you off to somebody and moves on to somebody else. And so it was, it was, a, it was a, I really loved it. It was terrific. And then he said something sort of offhandedly, like very complimentary, which is that uh, I love your story and we'll publish anything you write from here on out. Wow. I didn't take it too seriously. But I, I did, I did, I can tell you that, like, within four or five years, I was back to getting form rejection letters from them.
0: Yeah. I, mean,
1: I, I was getting personal rejection mm-hmm. letters from them for a while. Not only did they, obviously they did not publish anything else after I wrote that. And this is, I, sh- I always have a little trouble when people talk like this, that I, I have no sense of entitlement. The reason why they weren't publishing my stories is because they weren't, they weren't good stories. I'm, I'm understand, I understand that, but you do sort of. No, notice. you didn't
0: sleep with them, man. That was like, that was the moment your career could have gone one direction. <laughs> you came to a crossroads, right? And you took integrity. That's OK. But, you know, that's where that's where you are now.
1: And, you know, a hotel room in Manhattan isn't cheap. The, the whole thing just was a horrible mistake. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so you know, at that point, uh, there really the point is, is that there is Sarah, Sarah and all the rest of you young writers out there. There really is no such thing as momentum in this in, in writing. You have to keep writing is the thing. So the idea that you, you deserve respect from the next editor at the next small literary journal because one literary, you know, I'll say it giant kind of praised you the right way is, is just false. Yeah, but there, you so- still
0: use all that stuff to get, to, to get through, you know, the clutter – in query letters and things like that. Right. I mean, it's,
1: it's great for cover letters. And I just had this experience, which we're going to actually talk about in the next episode where I've been working on a novel and I have no trouble getting agents to look at a chapter or two of my novel, because in my cover letter, I say that I'm a plinthin Plin prize winner and all that, you know, push prize and all that stuff like that. But I can tell you that no agent has taken me on from those pages because there's no money to be had there. So, I mean, it does help, but it, it isn't going to, it really isn't, uh, you actually have to sit down and write something.
0: Yeah. Which you do too. And, uh, even sitting down and writing something doesn't automatically mean anything, but, uh, except that you've written something.
1: Yeah. It's, it's hard to, it's one of those things where you can do everything the right way and still be sitting on stories that you know are just as good as anything else that has been published and not be able to get them published for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. We've talked
1: about it in other episodes and stuff like that, but it, it is, you know, there is sort of the sense of you're plugged into, something bigger than yourself and I don't really mind getting rejection letters and all that stuff like that uh, because it just sort of feels like, well, I'm still trying. And my experience of having written the story isn't really connected to your experience of publishing it or not. It,
0: it, sometimes that yeah. feels
1: better than other times, but it really is out of my hands whether a story gets published or doesn't.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. I wanted to um, take the conversation to a slightly different place. Uh, And just talk about it. Actually, I want to go back to another episode about anxiety, the anxiety of influence and the influence of anxiety. If you remember that episode, I sure do. That was one of my favorites. It was fun. Um, We mostly talked about the anxiety of influence uh, because that was just fun to joke around with. And we didn't talk about the influence of anxiety as much, if I'm saying that right. But basically about the feeling of insecurity that writers tend to have. Yeah. And I guess I would just like to say to all the young writers out there who worry that they are the only ones that are insecure, that you are certainly not. <laughs> it seems to me to be the, it's very strange if you are self-confident all the time and you don't doubt your own abilities. At least that's my experience. Um, and I was going to tell, a qu- I'll, I'll tell a quick little story about my early moment in my life where I was at a crossroads, talking about crossroads today.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, I was working at the Ritz-Carlton a restaurant in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in a place called Laguna Niguel. Um, weird thing. They're not actually in the city of Laguna Niguel. They're, they're located in the city limits of a place called Dana Point, but they yeah. use their clout to like, just tell the local governments that we're, our official le- address is going to be Laguna Niguel because we want that on our letterhead. And the funny thing about Laguna Niguel is it's is just a complete soulless, like, housing tracks and strip malls, and it's inland, it doesn't really touch the beach anywhere, it's just like, you know, it's expensive and nice in a way, but it's, and Dana Point is this cool beach town that has a long history, and it has a harbor, and a lot of character. It doesn't have a nuclear power plant? Uh, Dana Point doesn't, though. No. San oh. Onofre, oh, okay. you were thinking of. I don't think San Onofre is actually it. A- There's no town called that. It's just the San Onofre nuclear power plant. Um, At any rate, go ahead. Yeah. um, So I'm working at the Ritz Carlton restaurant, right? It's fancy restaurant, and I'm just like a waiter. And one, and I had, uh, I was about to turn thirty, and I had applied to and was accepted into uh, a MFA program across the country, and I really wasn't sure if I hadn't answered the. You know, the acceptance yet. I didn't know whether I wanted to do it or not. And I was having a lot of doubts about what, like, taking that much of a commitment from going from somebody who likes to write and to somebody who's saying, okay, I'm going to devote in this really formal way years of my life to this. It's kind of admitting that you're trying to become a real writer. And uh, so I was working a special party, like a private party. <clears throat> Um, The people that have private parties at the Ritz are super, super rich. It was a giant family, like a great aunt's 90th birthday kind of thing. And there's like 60 people there, all generations from like 15 year olds to, you know, to the to the 90 year old. And right. And they were a super this is near L.A., by the way. So there's a lot of Hollywood people come to that Ritz Carlton to do to relax and all that. And this was like a showbiz family. It was a musical family. It was clear. They passed out sheet music to all the attendees, like every single person there, sheet music that none of them had seen before. And they just looked at it. And then by sight reading, they sang this like heavenly song and then, and then rang bells like at the right time. And so it's this bell and singing thing to honor the great aunt. And it was gorgeous. And, and they were just cool. I thought, if I'm ever rich, I want to be this kind of rich because they just seemed to have it down. Like they were funny and witty and they were nice to the servers. They weren't jerks. They weren't right. showing right. off. They were talented as hell. So they all go. And then the woman that's running the whole thing, this family member, she, um, everybody leaves the room. They go to, and she goes to talk to me about like the next stage of the event they had planned or whatever. And she was just real cool. And she's, she said, Hey, so what are you what's your thing in life? I I can just talking to you, I can see that you you got more going on than waiting tables and, and what? I was, really She did say that. And yes. I was uh I was flattered. Um and I don't you, she didn't mean to insult waiters, yeah. by the way. She just thought you, that, you know, she was kind of saying you seem like a bright kid and uh waiters can't be bright, I guess. <laughs> I don't know.
1: You must have had your shirt tucked in or something.
0: I don't know what I was doing right or wrong, but um or she just said that to everybody because she was just like, knows it made him feel good.
1: Well, I don't mean to, I don't mean to this. You actually do strike me as a bright guy too. So I know what she's talking Aww. about. Thank you, Dan.
0: Um, so she says that and I go, well, got this MFA, I just been accepted to this program and I, I sort of want to be a writer, you know, like, I'm into literature and but I'm not sure if I'm going to do it because it's just, I don't know if I'm good enough. Basically. I'm not sure if I'm like whatever anything I've written is really worthy. And, and she said, well, if you do keep going with this, just get used to that feeling. Cause that's going to, how it's going to feel the rest of your life. And that's just what it's, what it is to be an artist is to yeah. constantly doubt yourself and then have little moments where you probably have more confidence than you should have. And, and then not as much confidence as you should have. And it's just being an, being an artist is being neurotic a lot of the time. And, uh, and in a way, she was kind of telling me that I am already an artist by just right. because of that worry. That, that was sort of a mark for her that I was going doing the right thing. And, and, and I may be revising my own, mythologizing my own past a little, but that seemed to be the, the moment that I finally really decided to, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this MFA thing. And yeah. So anyway, there's my story.
1: She tip you? she a good tipper?
0: I, yeah, I think so. But I yeah. don't remember that part of it. I would have remembered if she was a bad tipper.
1: <laughs> well, and of course, so, you, I mean, if she's absolutely right, you know, she, that, that is the thing. It, I mean, they call it the imposter's complex or call it whatever you want, but you never do feel like you arrived. And especially, you know, as a writer, there's just no point. Maybe if you win the Nobel Prize or something like that for literature, you're going to feel like you arrived. I don't know.
0: And the Nobel Prize for literature, just to remind uh, our listeners, is the prize they give to the greatest creator of literature in the world that year. Um, Neil Diamond. So, who is the current greatest literature person, maker, in the world right now, Dan, according to you? Just your guess. The,
1: the greatest writer in the world right now? Yeah. Uh, 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 the, the, uh, uh, Frank Black from the Pixies.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. Yes, I agree. I'm glad that we and I think that you would make a very very good uh, Nobel liter liter prize for literature committee member or chair of the committee. Um, actually, the greatest writer in the world right now is Bob Dylan. Yes, and uh, that was hot news when we first started this podcast a few months ago. Um, mm-hmm. But then other news got in the way. We were going to talk about it back then because it was on everybody's tongues, and then and then bigger, more kind of dire. News events sort of happened, and uh, it got uh, eclipsed, and I think most people just stopped thinking about Bob Dylan um, and not caring, you. not you. But now we're back with it, and I think it's a, a valid question or at least an interesting question. Um, do what you think he deserved it, Dan? And if so, or if not, um, explain your rationale.
1: Okay, I, I'll answer the question. Because it's, it's a question that I've answered many, many times. In fact, my 14-year-old daughter once ran up the stairs while my wife and I were having an argument and said the greatest thing of all time, which was, stop fucking arguing about Bob Dylan.
0: <laughs> she
1: screamed that at us. And the reason why is because— um,
0: That ain't the Brady I, Bunch, man. That's real life.
1: Well, Davy Jones won the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize. All right, anyway, yeah, <laughs> Gabe, cut that out. Yeah, the I, I do think Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize was well deserved. I am one of I and it's not just because it upset the right people, but I think that his lyrics and his uh you know the poetry of his words. I know he sings them, but it's still words on a page at some point. I think that they have a specific kind of resonance that people are able to read all sorts of stuff into and it's hard not to start thinking about it, you know, immediately, as soon as you read a Bob Dylan lyric, you start like thinking, well, what did he mean? And then you start assigning meaning to all sorts of different stuff. And it works on almost an alchemical, an
0: alchemically. What's yeah. the word?
1: Yeah. I mean, it works on some really great level. I, I read his, um, his biography. Alchemical
0: from- means really great then. Just, yes. just to be clear. So our, our listeners don't, uh, you know, we want everybody to use words the right way. Okay. Yeah. It carry on. Neato.
1: Basically it means neato. Uh, I just think that he's got a he whatever he's got something indefinable, but it is absolutely there. And I think his Nobel Prize, the committee was right. They, and actually, that's what they gave. They they said um, you probably have the statement right in front of you there about how he opened up new ways of communicating or whatever it was. I guess that re- refers to the fact that there's songs, but I think it was well deserved. I'm I'm behind the Nobel committee.
0: I well, like, okay, that's fair enough. But like, Yeah. I am not, and it's, I'm not a uh, going to bat for my position because I don't, you know, it's just not something I'm going to have a teenager scream at me to quit arguing about kind of person. But um, did that make sense? I think it did. It Um, did.
1: Uh, You know, it just makes me feel sad for you.
0: (laughs) I don't have a teenage child, so I, I just am not there. So, um. But uh, I am, I've thought about this, about myself, what kind of person I am, and and for better and worse, I am somebody who craves symmetry and order, and I actually believe in rules, and I just think that this is, I can't convince myself that this is not a breaking of the rules for a one-time thing because we love Bob Dylan. I don't think any other songwriter has ever been, um even considered in my lifetime and never will sure again for true. the rest of my life. Yes. So just I just think that if you're gonna say songwriters, you need to consider them. They need to be on the list every single year or never. That's my position on it. And it may seem arbitrary. Um but it also has to do with the way I write and the way that I think about the world. I I I kind of crave consistency and um friend of mine said it had something to do with being raised hippie where there weren't any rules and I was always just trying to find my own boundaries. And, yeah. um, and it just doesn't seem fair that you would just say, uh, you know, this one time because this guy is so cool. I I guess I don't believe that he is a once in a lifetime talent. I think that oh. he is, there's a few other talents that also could be argued are not as well known perhaps, but um
1: okay a couple things i'm gonna jump in here let's i mean let's you 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 called it a singer he didn't he didn't win for his singing and i don't think he would have won for his singing and you know molly agrees with you on that she said give him a grammy don't give him the nobel the other thing is that um well two, First of all we don't know who's on the list but you know you're right. probably Cat stevens isn't on the list or Cat powers isn't even on the list but the other thing is that uh you, they're giving the prize out to somebody anyway. Surely there's tons of more talented writers that you've never heard of who are deserving of that prize than aren't on that list. So just because he's Bob Dylan.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm... Uh, maybe I was trying to stretch my, my reason for disagreeing too much. And it's simply that, you know, there's there's a lot of different kinds of ways to honor a music. It's not a singing voice, but he sure as hell... Didn't get in because of the book Tarantula, you know, or his children's book or whatever. You know what I mean? There's or Chronicles.
1: Yeah, it's very badly written, but and, it's but, it, but but fascinating.
0: Yeah. Um, here's the second question: Does it matter? <laughs> you know, you said something about it pissed off the right people. Um, that does it? Yeah. What is your argument that that it is even worth us talking about? Um aside from the fact that we, you know, we need to come up with a new topic every week and, you know, might as well do this one.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I guess on my Facebook feed was filled up with writers who spend a lot of time carefully choosing their words, poets who are very uh fussy with their language saying things like, anybody who thinks Dylan deserved this should get a hot poker shoved up their ass. <laughs> That's not a paraphrase. That's actually a specific thing that a poet that I'm friends with only on Facebook who has a number of books published, some of whom you've probably heard of, actually wrote. So <laughs> th- the question is, why did it get the poetry? It was Aaron
0: Baker, right? <laughs> uh, Hi, Aaron. It hey, was not Aaron Baker. No, I don't think Aaron was. I would, would love to know that. what
1: he thought about that. Do you know what he thought about that? Yeah, Aaron doesn't listen. No. We're only friends of his. He's not going gonna... um, to. Can I read something to you? I brought, I brought mm-hmm. a copy of Chronicles. Okay. And there's a passage in here. This is it's ostensibly his autobiography. And there's there's when you read this, you sort of have the um, the the same feeling you get when you look at his lyrics, which is that you can find meaning between the words and between the lines. And he wrote this little passage that's sort of like an aside. And it's just it's about a paragraph long and it's about sort of the creative process. I'm just going to read it to you. Page 90. One guy who kept reappearing in the news was Carl Chessman, a notorious rapist whom they called the Red Light Bandit. He was on death row in California after being tried and convicted of raping young women. He had a creative way of doing it, strapped a flashing red light to the top of his automobile and then pulled the girls over to the side of the road, ordering them out, hauling them into the woods, robbing and raping them. He'd been on death row for quite a while, making appeal after appeal, but his last appeal had been final and he was scheduled to go into the gas chamber. Chessman had become a cause celebre, celebre, and luminaries had taken up his plight. Norman Mailer, Ray Bradbury, Aldous Huxley, Robert Frost, even Eleanor Roosevelt were calling for his life to be spared. An anti-death penalty group had asked Len, that's his friend who he's been writing about this chapter, had asked Len to write a song about Chessman. How do you write a song about a pariah who rapes young women? What would be the angle, he asked me, as if his imagination was actually on fire? I don't know, Len. I guess you'd have to build it slowly. Maybe start with the red lights. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that says something about the way that uh, the creative process is divorced from the morality of the situation and how the, you have to divorce it from everything in
0: your world that is concrete. Yeah. And that, I, I think no. any kind of writer is going to, most writers that you're ever going to ask about how they go about it. Are going to st- steer you away from making big sweeping moral judgments. Instead, focus on little details that that bring it to life. And yeah, that, that flashing red light. Um, I don't know if that passage convinces me that he definitely deserves the Nobel Prize for literature, but uh, it is neat. And I did, and I actually saw that passage being passed around Facebook. So I assume it's the, the best moment in that book.
1: Um, I think I'm the only one who did it. I did. Sean, type it out.
0: No, um, Sean uh, Chapman did.
1: Mm, he might have copied
0: mine he probably did he told i'm gonna story. ask to,
1: so anyway that's it that's uh, so he could talk about the creative process he he's he's uh his you know I, you want me to find lyrics that are astoundingly deep or what, what's the criteria of somebody i guess the other question is that if you take a look at the list of previous nobel winners do they all meet your criteria of what an important artist is or what a
0: serious artist is? If I read them, I, they might. Um, no, I I guess my question was, does it matter? Um, and uh, I don't know that what you said convinced me that it matters whether he won it or not. Um, my answer to the question, my own question about whether it matters who gets the Nobel Prize and who doesn't get the Nobel Prize is as far as utility goes it, the nobel prize for literature makes um semi famous writers internationally famous and gets their books published everywhere and, uh, and people who are are kind of provincially known become internationally known and and um and it basically makes somebody's career go from small to gigantic and that seems to be kind of neat and also it be, these these books are translated, and it has to do with posterity. Like, you know, <clears throat> um, they carefully select books that, that they think mean something. Are they the best books of the world at any given moment, or the best writers? No, probably not. There's no, that's impossible to really say. Um, but for various reasons, they find them important, and they have pretty good criteria or pretty good argument for why they should be read, and they do get read because of it. Um, I don't think this prize did a damn thing. You know, except got internet, except got Facebook buzzing for a few weeks, which was fun. Um, right, it, it was nice to get away from the presidential candidate election kind of run up that was for a little while. But it did not get Bob Dylan any more. You know, it it started a conversation about what is poetry and what isn't poetry. But I don't know that it. I, I guess I just didn't think. I thought it was a kind of a wasted year to. To pick somebody who's so incredibly famous and who has gotten so many ac- accolades, yeah, um, yeah, so many prizes, he's gotten, he's been honored in every way he possibly can. Filthy rich, and to heap yet another one, it's just like he's that dragon in Lord of the Rings that is just sitting on this giant pile of treasure, and so to throw in another jeweled crown is just meaningless. Um, and in fact, he didn't show up to the to the awards, which I, I thought was kind of cool. I mean, I think he, yeah. I like Bob Dylan, by the way, and I do think he's a genius in his way. Um,
1: so what you're, what you're almost arguing for is like having a more utilitarian purpose in awarding that particular prize. You want it, you want them to bring somebody out of the darkness and into the
0: light, which they do. That's usually what they do. Yeah. I just think it's one year where they just didn't do the useful thing that it usually does. And, and instead they just wanted to highlight somebody who was already highlighted. And they did it for their own purposes. And here's where I, what I think is interesting about it, and this is my, my little theory. I don't think Bob Dylan won for his lyrics. I don't mm-hmm. think Bob Dylan won for his books, for his life, for his music even. Um, I think he won because it is the final... I think the baby boomers very, very keenly sense their mortality and their, their, their weakening grip on the power of the world that they have held for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, they're starting to dwindle in numbers. They're certainly aging. And Bob Dylan is the perfect emblem of the idealism of that generation. And the, those young kind of baby boomers at their best in a way you know, yeah. protesting the Vietnam in it, and I think that that Nobel Prize didn't go to Bob Dylan, the man, the artist. It went to the ideal. It went to that summer of '68 when me and Moonbeam were sitting, you know, in the farm, smoking reefer, and listening to music, and you know what I mean. I, I just think that's You're what it's all about. It's like an about.
1: emblematic prize. I mean, kind of the same way they gave Obama the Peace Prize after he had been in office for like four months.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do think that that's that's a pretty uh well, I don't know. There's probably differences in in those two cases, but yeah, I think it's a fair comparison. Um and I think for that it's fine, you know, you have a very large in number and very influential uh generation of people that that have certain shared ideas and cultural moments and to devote this prize for one year out of all the years that exist to uh to that um as the the baby boomers are starting to to sort of become less influential every year they're still v- extremely influential by the way and it's not like they're done but um that doesn't seem like an unfair thing to do but right. i think that it gets away from what i would imagine the purpose of the nobel prize in literature should be but uh, you know it's it's not a yeah it doesn't break my heart, you know, and, and I, I find this whole thing kind of intellectually stimulating to talk about, but I don't get hot under the collar about it either way. Um, and I do like, his songs do kind of blow me away now and then, and, and I know exactly what you mean about the, they don't make sense, but yet they right. feel like they make sense. And well, you bring a
1: lot of your own meaning to them. And, um, you know, he wanted, he, he has won an Oscar. You know what song he won an Oscar for? Um, it's got a personal rejection letter connection. What? The one, the song he played, uh, wrote for the wonder boys movie. <coughs> I don't know what it's called, but, um, uh, you know that song? No, I'm afraid I don't. It's the wonder boys. It was, it was the theme to the
0: wonder boys. The Michael Shaoboon show, uh, movie. Shabon, Shabon. Yeah. Shabon. Um, you know, for some reason, I don't remember the song. It, it's it's actually—I don't think it's called "The Wonder Boys." I think it's called "Wonder Boys."
1: Whoa, hey, man, back off! I just—I uh, just, just hear I just, podcasting. I didn't,
0: <laughs> I didn't mean to ruffle your feathers. My feathers are not ruffled, my man. <laughs> That's actually not, yeah. my feathers aren't as ruffled as your feathers, dude. No,
1: they're not. Uh, for having created a new poetic for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. That's the official reason they gave it to him. Yeah. That's the citation. So yeah, I guess we're saying
0: here at personal rejection letter, we're like,
1: eh,
0: fine. Yeah. But interesting to talk about. And ref- we won't, we won't see enough. I mean, I would be upset actually if, if they did what I'm saying they should do for consistency's sake, if they're every three years, a, a song singer songwriter won. I would think that would be really shitty, especially considering that musicians, I think that musicians, music gets so much more attention and so much more money already that to give more of it, to to divert one of the few literary prizes, big literary prizes to an already like obscenely famous musician seems kind of weird. It should go the other way. I think that they should start giving Grammys to, like, novelists and, or poets especially because poets get not much, you know. They don't – they just don't make much money and et cetera. Yeah, I
1: had a, I had a teacher in grad school one, the year I was there. Stephen King won some literary prize, and he was upset about it because he kept saying, he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. He's got enough. But that's not what those purposes of those prizes are. It's not to, like, redistribute the wealth. I mean, partially I think those prizes – not that the Nobel needs it, but partially the prizes give it – to, to big people so that people will talk about the prize. And the other reason is, is, you know, they might think that the work itself has merit. I never read the Stephen King novel. I don't know, but yeah. So, I mean, I guess we we almost have to figure out what the prizes are for in the first place. And you're yeah. on record as saying, you don't think they're for much, that they're worth much anyway, that it's not that interesting to follow it.
0: Yeah. It's just like a, who's hot right now. And, and there's a sort of random quality to who gets it and who doesn't. And, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's, um, hey, I don't know how to transition out of this. It seems like we could keep going and sort of dwindling down. Um, but how about if I just ask you what you're reading, Dan, and what you're writing? I'm Anything glad you about asked, about your teaching me. that you want to talk about? We've got like two more weeks of the semester, and then I think I'm
1: going to break bad on this current class that I've got. But I want to finish it up so that, you know, I want to make sure the, the evaluations are written and in the bank before I before I do. I'm reading the Wapshot Chronicle. Have you ever read that? No. It's John Updike. No, I'm sorry. It's John Cheever.
0: Oh. Is it a novel?
1: Yes, it is. Huh. And um, it's really funny. I just started it. I, I, was, I intended to read it over the summer, but it was... <laughs> a funny thing that happened in my house where the book I was reading got locked into a room where somebody was taking a nap. And if somebody goes in and wakes a person up just to get a book, then that person gets in trouble. So I ended up just taking this book because it had been delivered by Amazon. I'm sorry, liberal listeners. I know I I am too, but I, I, I do order books from Amazon. And, uh, I, I just started reading it and I just fell right into it. He's. Have you read any of his novels? They're, I think they're no. better than the short stories.
0: I've read that that big book of short stories. I've read it cover to cover actually, which is uh, it's a lot yeah. of short stories and I love them. But you yeah, like the novels better, huh?
1: I do, and I've read all those stories too, or I think most of them. I don't know. I mean, they're sort of like grad school du rigueur for the for the uh, MFAs, and they're great. But, um, you should read Falconer and you should read, and this Wapshot Chronicle is great too. He's he's very funny. I've also read his, they published his journals. I interviewed Elizabeth uh, Strout for Fifth Wednesday Journal and she recommended his journals. She said she just reads his journals, just picks them up and randomly reads entries like that. And they're great. They're, they're, they're just observations about the weather. And he talks about his depression and They're sort of very meandering and uh, terrific. I think he's really underrated, but I don't know. Maybe he is rated highly, but he's a great writer. He should be rediscovered.
0: Sounds neat. I like the journal idea because that is sort of a a form. I guess I've been looking for forms that feel more authentic and closer to the author and and less... I guess less artifice, less obvious yeah. artifice, at least. And it seems like journal might be exactly the the place that I would enjoy going.
1: Yeah, these are great. I recommend them. Cool. What about you? What have you been doing?
0: Um, I got a uh, this week. I'll talk about um, getting at my. I think my least favorite kind of letter rejection from the Sun. They there's four brands of uh, response that they give to uh, probably all their writers, but certainly the, their regular contributors. And that is, A, is we love it. We'll take it. We'll send you the galleys in two weeks or two months.
1: That sounds that, like a pretty good rejection. That's good.
0: That's not rejection. That's acceptance. Oh, okay. Second cool. one is also acceptance. It is, we like it, but we want you to change the ending and the middle part and then the beginning. And pretty much we want you to rewrite the whole thing. But if you agree to all our changes, we'll, we'll accept it and we'll send you a contract. Okay, that's cool. And then there's the third level, which is level one rejection, which I just got for my latest piece that I sent them. And that is, you know, we, we don't think it's really there yet. But And then two and a half pages of notes about everything that's wrong with it. Um, if you want to revise it, we'd love to take a look again, but no promises. Right. You know, and that's the one I got. So it what it does is it's like, wow, I really, there's a lot of work that I could do to maybe get it public so you feel like you have to do the work but you still don't feel like well there is no guarantee and then the fourth level one is the um no thanks you know this one doesn't seem to work for us but good luck elsewhere and um so I got the the one where they want me to revise or they've invited me to revise and resubmit so I got that and I thought about it and instead of Immediately jumping into the revisions, I, I revised another essay that I have had kind of already waiting, um, because I, I only send them one piece at a time. And uh, so I sent them, I spent about a week just revising and going over and over this one piece. Um, so anyway, that's my writing right now.
1: You just put it under the same title and say, hey, I revised this thoroughly. So like you're one step closer. You, you... <laughs>
0: It's a good idea. I was actually just thinking about just coming up with a completely different title, but sending in the exact same essay and yeah. see how that works. Yeah. But um, I don't know or if you... I should uh, tell to kind of air my, my secrets like that. That might uh, backfire on me.
1: That's what makes you so raw and beautiful. Ah, beautiful, huh? That's, I read a description like of some sexy. other writer's work that was. Would... No, I, well, yeah, some people. You might, yeah, yes.
0: So anyway, that's what I've been going. And before we get out of here, before we start winding down, wink wink, um, we got a special announcement. I have a special announcement to make, and I think you're going to be behind it. And that is after the successful contest of giving away Married But Looking, um, we're going to go to uh, phase two of our write an iTunes review. And you get a free book. Uh, this time, the free signed book will be a copy of Cloudbreak, California," my yeah. memoir about kind of surf culture in Southern California. Father' Son memoir. You all, know, everybody loves those. And uh, a lot of travel and adventure, Page Turner, um, one of BuzzFeed's 13 Favorite works of nonfiction in 2013. Is that true? Yeah, that was my best uh, whatever.
1: Not exactly
0: a review, just there was sort of a review with it. But yeah, that was my biggest uh, um, honor, I suppose you might say. Holy cow, congratulations. Hey, man, it's not a Plimpton award or anything like that, so don't... uh,
1: That was a short story. It was, was, you know, 20 pages, took me half an hour. Yeah,
0: BuzzFeed, though, I... At BuzzFeed, at first it said, eh, BuzzFeed's kind of cheesy. But then I thought, no, that's awesome. That's like no. better than almost any other reviewing body I can think of. So yeah, I Onion, like BuzzFeed. I'm all the Onion
1: had it. Uh, the Onion had a funny story. That the headline was something like, a BuzzFeed journalist trying to explain to ISIS. Or, yeah, no, no, it was journalist trying to explain to ISIS what BuzzFeed is. I don't know. The story was he was about to get his head cut off, but he had to explain what BuzzFeed was. to Got them. it. That's it's, kind of funny, not funny, huh? Funny, not funny, but the onion, you know, they get away with it. Well, Kelly, I want to tell you and our listeners that I love your book also. It was one of my top 13 favorite
0: books of 2013. 2013? Yeah, that's when it came out.
1: 13 of 2013? Is that why they did that?
0: Yep. You got it. It popped. You got it.
1: Yeah. I'm at, I would actually go so far as to say it was one of my top eight of 2013. Wow. And so anybody who writes a review is going to be very happy when that gets in there.
0: If it were... Main books. I would have had to publish it in 2008 to make that work, though.
1: The story about the, uh, the nice rich lady with the bells having dinner is not in it, but that period is in it, so you, yes. you get more of that,
0: yeah. And in fact, I think the book completely contradicts the story with the bells in that I have a completely different motivation for going into an MFA in the book. So that's another fun thing to do when you're reading my book is to find the, the contradiction and see it's what a liar MFA. I am. I
1: it's a memoir so we just assume it's completely false anyway correct all right kelly this was fun let's do one right away
0: yeah let's let's barely pause and keep going and um yeah all of you guys out there we're gonna pause a long time as far as you're concerned um but not too long and we'll see you next week we'll not see you we'll talk to you next week um, well bye now bye Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Student Radio. Gabe Tucker is our audio engineer, and Subatlantic provides the theme music. You can reach Dan and Kelly on Facebook. We always welcome comments, critiques, suggestions, and especially praise. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you hear, do a podcast to solid and leave a review on iTunes. See you next time.